If you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to Psalm 9 this morning. Psalm 9. To the choir master, according to Muth Leban, a psalm of David. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount your praises, all your praises. Then the gates of the daughter of Zion, I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk in the pit that they made. In the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. We've come now in, as we've been making our way through the Psalter to the first psalm of direct praise to God and one that calls all of God's people, even the nations, to give praise to Yahweh as God. And the, the point, the focus, what is driving David in this psalm is to show how God's consistent character not only fuels the praises of his people, but also gives them hope and confidence so that they can go to him and find mercy and justice in their time of need. And so that's what we want to see this morning as well. And so we want to uh, see from this psalm two responses that ought to be a part of our lives. First, the first response from this psalm is that we ought to praise from our experience we ought to praise God from experience. We see this in verses 1 through 12. Notice that David begins the psalm by saying, I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. This is the kindling. This is the gasoline in the tank of praise for David. His remembrance of God's past Provision. And that's not uncommon in the Bible either. In many, many places, this is, this is how God's people give praise. They start by remembering the mighty deeds of God. 
And as we'll see in a minute, this remembering of God's previous grace not only leads us to praise, but also to prayer. It solidifies our conviction about the power and the goodness of God. As I was thinking through this, I was reminded again of George Mueller, a man that we talked about uh, a few psalms ago, who kept journals of God's provision in his life. He kept journals uh, recording what he was praying for and how God had answered it. And towards the end of his life, he found that he could could find 50,000 specific answers to prayer from God throughout his life. I'm not sure that we could remember 15 or 20 in the last couple weeks. Um, Not any less significant, though much less in number. A while ago, I was talking to a young man, and when he was growing up as a young child, it was the habit of him and his parents to pray before bed. And they encouraged him to keep a notebook to record both the prayers that they were praying, as well as the way that God answered those prayers. And he said he still had those notebooks, that they were a great encouragement to him. Uh, All of this in the modern day, uh, as we think about it even for us, should lead us as we sing, O come thou fount of every blessing, here I raise mine Ebenezer. Do you know that you have an Ebenezer to raise? Do you know what an Ebenezer is? As a kid, that really baffled me. I thought, what is that? I was thinking it was like a Scrooge thing or something. Um, But no, an Ebenezer is a reference in that psalm back to 1 Samuel about the stone that was set in place, in a very prominent place, so that as people came by, they said, what's that stone there for? What's that huge rock for? They could say, this is an Ebenezer. God was our help. That's what the word means. And so the point is, find some way to erect your own Ebenezer, whether that's with an an old school notebook, whether that's with a a word file on your computer, whether it's analog or digital, find some way to keep a record of God's work in your life as a means of igniting your praise and your prayer. That's that's the the kind of front-loading application that David is helping us to see this morning. Well, when he did that, what kind of praise did he offer to God? Why did he praise Him? First of all, notice that he praised from a, a passionate heart. David prays God with a passionate heart. David says, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exalt in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. A man by the name of Plummer, who has written a massive commentary on the Psalms from back in the 1800s, makes the observation that in the Bible there's really three different types of people who worship God. He says that first there are those that are the outright hypocrites. They feign worship. It is a a game. Maybe not because they even know that it's a game, because they have no genuine faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. They do not know God, therefore they cannot rightly worship Him. But he said second, there are those who worship from a divided heart. These would be fearful of outright hypocrisy if you ask them, but the problem is they are not committed to the Lord. They are torn between the worship of God and the worship of idols in their hearts. And finally, the third type, which is exhibited by David here, is those who worship God with spiritual integrity, those who worship with a whole heart. It is a description that's used both in the Old and the New Testament. In fact, if you want to see this played out in terms of the worship of life, how do you live a life of worship before God with spiritual integrity, with a whole heart, then this afternoon sit down and take about 30 or 40 minutes and read the book of James because that is really the theme of his book. 
of spiritual integrity, of living a life wholly devoted to God. So that what you say and where you go and how you think and plan and pray and treat other people is unified before God, not splintered with our affections divided among God and the idols of our heart. Notice this phrase is not about perfection, but sincerity. David is describing the earnestness of his worship, and frankly, we ought to imitate him. How do we begin to do that? Well, it goes back to what we said earlier, knowing and remembering who God is. Only then will, be rightly, will we be rightly led to be glad and exult in Him. Only then will we be able to be rightly motivated to sing praise to the Most High God. David's heart is passionate for God because he remembers, secondly, times of persistent victories. Those past persistent victories. David zeroes in on some of the wonderful deeds done by the mighty hand of God. And he, he begins with what God has done specifically in his life, his personal victories. Those that opposed David's reign as king found no victory for their cause. Just the opposite. The same God who called David also protected David throughout his life. So he says in verse 3, When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. Plummer is again helpful when he says that one of the strongest marks of wisdom is simply to know whence our help comes. If our enemies fall or flee, it is at God's presence. He can alarm the most resolute, take away natural courage, put a dreadful sound in men's ears, and fight terribly, though invisibly, against his foes. This was David's experience, and it ought to be ours as well, one that would lead us to praise God. David gave praise because of, his, because of his personal victories made known in his life, but then notice he goes on to talk about national victories as well. In verse 5, he says, you have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities, you rooted out. The very memory of them perished. Here we are reminded that David is not just a man. In the, in the sense of frailty, yeah, he's just a man. But he's more than that. He is the king over Israel. He is the anointed one that God has raised up from the shepherd fields and put on the throne of his covenant people, Israel. So he is in a unique position to bear a greater sense of weight and responsibility. It is, it is more on him than anyone else if the enemies of God's people have victory over them or if they are defeated. More than anybody else in Israel, he is one who desires the good of God's people and he knows the threats to their well-being. Now, when we think about this, David condemning all the other nations, especially today, we have to ask some questions and think clearly because what we've seen already and what we will continue to see in ever-increasing graphic ways throughout the Psalms is a decrying of the nations. Israel looks out to the peoples around them and says, you deserve death. Your children deserve terrible things to happen to them. You deserve to have your teeth kicked out of your mouth and go down your throat. Uh, the, the nations deserve to be trashed. You're thinking, wow, that is harsh. 
And why just the nations? Why not just sinners? Is David and therefore the Bible racist? Is there an an ethnic pride that existed within Israel that led them to look down on the other peoples of the world? The simple answer is no. No, not at all. In fact, it's not long that we need to look when we find even in David's life at his death. One of the people that is said to have loved David was the king of Tyre, a neighboring foreign nation. In fact, he loved David so much, he admired, respected, was friends with David so much that when it came time for David's son Solomon to build the temple, he donated the wood and many of the resources to provide the furnishings so that it might be completed. We can go on and on and on. We can think of how David came to be born, his great-great-grandmother Ruth, a Moabitess who came. The point is, there is not a kind of anti-foreigner sentiment that runs the Psalms. It is an anti-sinner, anti-idolater, anti-the-people-who-stand-against-God sentiment that David has in mind here. Satan often uses kings and armies and nations to wage war against God's people. And when that happens, those nations stand not just as Israel's enemies, but as the enemies of God. And so David looks back and he says, I remember those times. I've heard about those times. I've seen those times. And you know what happened? God rebuked those nations. He stopped them in their path and he prevented them from having victory over us. He caused the wicked to perish. The nations that opposed Yahweh were left in everlasting ruins. So we see that David is giving praise to God with a passionate heart, thinking about persistent victories, as well as the fact that God is a permanent stronghold for His people. The Lord is a permanent stronghold for His people. That thought, that reality led David to give praise to God. You know, you cannot help but have politics force-fed to you if you are all watching the news these days or reading um, anything online. It's just all over the place. And it's always interesting for me to hear people try and claim the founders for themselves, the Constitution or whatever else. And it's interesting, I was thinking about that in the context of this psalm, and it's interesting that the founders, even though we often talk that way, they didn't actually create this country to be a pure democracy. This country is not a pure democracy. It is a democratic republic. You say, well, what's the difference? The difference is that in a pure democracy, the majority rule without limit. You got 51% of the votes, that's what's happening. Whether it's right or wrong, or regardless of whether or not we voted differently uh, five years ago, when, and all, all the people that voted against it died off. I mean, that, that's just the difference. But in a democratic republic, we have a constitution. We have a, we have a rule of law by which all of the democracy occurs. We have certain inalienable rights that have been guaranteed, at least rather uh, it's recognized that they've been guaranteed by our creator in days past. I'm not so sure anymore. Uh, that allows the citizens of this country to have certain freedoms, there are checks and balances in the Constitution in place to make sure that no one person has too much power. Now, why was it designed that way? Frankly, the founders believed in the doctrine of sin. That doesn't make all of them Christian. They weren't, but all of them had a basic belief in God. 
and all of them had an essential belief in sin. There was enough of a biblical worldview in the culture in that day that they understood that humanity could both aspire and achieve greatness as well as deep depravity. And so no one branch of government was meant to have too much power. Have you ever thought about the fact that even the people, you hear oftentimes today, we want the wisdom of the people. That's not what the founders thought. You cannot elect a president directly. We have an electoral college. Have you ever thought about that? We, you know, they say every vote counts. Well, in some ways it does. But the founders did not trust leadership and it didn't trust the people. It had checks and balances on all of it. Why? Because they knew that people were sinful. People were not always going to get it right. Even the best people were not going to get it right. And as great as our country is, if we don't understand that both from the voting booth to the people in Washington, then we will have this false belief about the security of our country that will lead it to basically be another Tower of Babel. A fortress that we surround ourselves with that becomes an edifice to our pride and our thinking that we can achieve ultimate safety and security apart from God. Instead, we must let our minds and our hearts be shaped by the Bible. Notice what David says. It is the Lord who sits enthroned forever. Notice the contrast. What did he just say? All of these enemies, all of the nations and what's happening, they are perishing. But the Lord, verse 7, sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice and he judges the world, how? With righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. So unlike every other political leader who are coming and going like whiffs of smoke on the stage of histories, who policies change from person to person, whoever is in leadership from administration to administration, those who lead with ego and vanity and who trample upon the backs of those who cannot offer anything to support their cause, the Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed. He is a stronghold in times of trouble. Why? Because Yahweh's reign never ends. It never comes to an end. Nobody votes him out of office. Nobody takes a different term. It's always him standing above everything with justice and equity. So even those who are oppressed need not fear being overlooked by the Lord. More than that, he will be a stronghold for them. He will be a refuge and a fortress, a place of safety and security for those who find no justice or no mercy anywhere else in this life. Unlike every other king, leader, and politician who has ever wielded power, David says to God, those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Yahweh, have not forsaken those who seek you. This morning, it does not matter where you're at in terms of your knowledge of God. It doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for 30 years or if you've been bouncing around in different churches and you don't really have any idea who God is, you certainly don't know if you're a Christian. If you seek after God, He will not hide from you. He will not run away from you. He will not say, why are you bothering me? No, He will receive you. And He will give you more grace and more support and more justice and more righteousness than you could ever possibly imagine. He will help guide you to know who he is that you might come 
to faith in Christ. What more could we hope for in a God? Those who seek him will never be forsaken. Therefore, we can always trust him. How should we respond to that kind of a God? What, 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 what should we do in light of these things? David tells us very clearly in verses 11 through 12. In light of all of these things, in light of what God has been and what he has done for me and for Israel in the midst of the nations, sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. The only fitting response is worship. Wholehearted, undivided worship. Worship that takes God seriously rather than for granted. Rather than fitting God into our schedule. Rather than worshiping in ways that you happen if you have nothing else to get done. It becomes a joyful priority like it was for David and many, many others in the scriptures. As an individual, as a gathered people, we are to give praise to God because he alone deserves it. And because the way in which he has served us, even when we did not need it or deserve it or would find help in any other place, such was his grace and mercy, there can be no other fitting response than the wholehearted worship of God and the proclamation of his salvation so that others might join in that worship as well. This is what David shows us in Psalm 9, that we ought to praise from our experience. But secondly, he shows us that we ought to pray with expectation we ought to pray with expectation. In these verses, the psalm moves from a prayer or rather from praise to a prayer for deliverance from affliction. Despite the fact that he's been delivered previously, there are now new threats to come. So we should not imagine, we should not imagine that just because we get saved, just because we come to God, that now everything's fine. Our life is a bed of roses and everything will be wonderful. That was not David's experience nor anyone that I've ever heard of in the history of the church. Problems still happen. Life in this sinful world still occurs. And so just because we can look back and say, man, God, didn't he deliver us back then? Yeah, so pray for deliverance now. Pray for God to continue to do a work in your life now. That's what David is helping us to see. And when we pray, we are expected that God will answer. Why? Because the same God who's acted in the past is now consistent with his character and will continue to act like this in the future. You know, just this week, it was driven home to me once again, just how fickle, just how unreliable people can be. Uh, had a uh, kind of a very brief encounter with a friend. He was, he was uh, encouraging and he was talking about getting together. And the second I started pressing him for help, I started asking for him to do something for me. The conversation got very frosty, got very cold. It basically turned off. So it kind of went from like, you know, flowing hot water. How are you? It's awesome. It's amazing. Chris, let's get together. Hey, can you help me? Boop. Off. Have you ever been in the shower? There's the, the, you know, everybody else has been in the shower. You're the last one and you're trying to hurry up and you've got that nice warm water and all of a sudden you're like, ah, and you're like scrubbing the shampoo out super quick because it is getting freezing cold. That's how the conversation went. I don't want to help you was what he was saying. I don't want to be bothered with this. I just want to say hi. I just want to check in, be friendly, just do the friend thing and be done. No obligation. The Lord's not like that. That's what David says. The God is not like that. 
who he has been in the past, he will continue to be in the future. He never gets help. He never gets tired of helping people. So what do we do? How, how do we pray in light of this? First of all, we offer up pleas for grace. We offer up pleas for grace. This is how David begins his prayer. Be gracious to me, O Lord. Some translations might have merciful. They, they, they are closely related. Why? See my affliction from those who hate me. Oh, you who lift me up from the gates of death. David has been delivered from those who are afflicting him, but there's more. And therefore, he needs God to continue to be gracious to him. You saved me once, you delivered me once, do it again. And notice why. Certainly, it's because he wants to be saved. He wants to escape this problem. But that's not the only reason. When we pray for grace, it's not just for our good, though it is. But it's not just for our good, it's also for God's glory. Listen again. Be gracious to me, O Yahweh, that, verse 14, I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. We pray with the expectation that God is going to give us what we need. He's going to bring the rescue and the deliverance by his grace. And therefore, we don't get to be arrogant about it. We don't get to go, that was a close one. We get to say, God's name be praised. He is the one who did it. And therefore, at the gates of the daughters of Zion, in the midst of the congregation of God's people, I will declare those praises. I will give testimony to what God has done. So yes, I know we all love sports and television and I'm guilty of it as much as everything else, but spend time on Sunday mornings declaring what God has done in your life too. Tell people this is what the Lord has done. This is the grace that he has shown me. And whether it's something as small like finding your car keys the last minute when they were totally lost and beyond you, or whether it's something massive like bringing healing, share it among God's people that he might be praised. One commentator says, public mercies call for public praise and great mercies for great thanksgivings. If those who experience gracious interpositions from God shall keep silent, how can God be honored any more by the righteous than by the wicked? David offers pleas for grace, not just for his own sake, but for God's sake. Notice, secondly, he also prays with the expectation of justice. He prays from the promise of justice, the promise of justice. Notice how the Lord has made himself known, not just in acts of saving mercy, but also in displays of judgment. Verse 16, through his providential reign over all things, the wicked are snared in their own hands. They dig a pit and they fall into it. We saw this a couple weeks ago, didn't we? It's like a moral boomerang. There are consequences for our actions even in this life. We're, we're talking about the nations. We're talking about God as king over all of them. God has ordained the nations, even the nation that we live in. He has ordained its government to restrain evil. God uses imperfect, sometimes even wicked men to do that. I'll never forget sitting in chapel at Cedarville College. Now it's a university. It got very prestigious. And my diploma still says college on it. And there was a man from Cuba there preaching a sermon and he gave a testimony about praying according to God's will and wisdom and not making demands of God. And he said, back in the 50s, we felt like we were persecuted by the government. 
We felt like that it was not good for us as believers. We didn't have the freedoms we wanted. So we begged and we pled, God, give us a new leader. Give us a new leader. Do something amazing. Give us something new. And God said, fine. And we got Castro. And it just got worse. Sometimes even wicked men are there to restrain evil in ways that we cannot see. We cannot even comprehend. And so we are thankful for those things, but we also remember that every nation, even our own, every nation that sets itself against God and his ways, verse 15, will find that they have sunk into the pit that they have made. In the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. In other words, the nations are not going to get off the hook. Isn't it interesting in the prophets? God says he raises up a wicked king and gives um, the profile, uh, the, the, I don't know what I'm looking for, but basically in that day, the creation of weapons of mass destruction in an army in a foreign country to judge his own people Israel. And then he turns around and says, and I will judge that country for its wickedness. No wickedness goes unjudged by God, whether it's in his people or whether it's by the nation. Sometimes they get caught in their own wickedness. How many times have we tried, especially in recent years, to undermine one regime and we get something worse as a country? And it comes back to bite us in the butt. I don't know if it's accurate or not, but there was a very long article, I think it was like in the Atlantic Monthly or something, one of those like 30-page booklets about how we inadvertently helped create Al-Qaeda by trying to undermine the Soviets in Afghanistan. I don't know how accurate it all is. I haven't read it through, but it's not that far-fetched. Sometimes the Lord is merciful toward his people and those nations, sparing them from all kinds of things. But think of what happens when we go to war. Aren't Christians called up to serve and go? Don't they die in combat? Weren't there Christians at Pearl Harbor when we were attacked? Weren't there Christians at the World Trade Center when it was attacked? God's people do not escape every form of evil. They do not escape even judgments that God brings to those nations. This is why justice in this life is never perfect. But friends and loved ones, there is perfect justice coming one day. Verse 18, David has hope that the needy shall not always be forgotten and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. The promise of perfect justice is seen in the coming of Christ not just in his first coming, but also in his second. In his first coming, God displayed his glory by both judging sin in Christ and by offering just forgiveness through Christ. As our sins were covered by him at the cross, he bore the penalty that we deserved. And now we can find forgiveness of the crime we've committed. All rebellion and idolatry because of his son. The cross showed both the righteousness the mercy and the justice of God. But more than that, there is a future day coming. As Paul preached to the Gentiles in Athens, he said that we know that because Christ has now come, the times of ignorance God once overlooked is overlooked no longer. Now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Why? Why, Paul? Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Here is the assurance that Christ was righteous and that he will be a righteous judge because God did not allow him to stay dead after he, after he was a substitute for sin, but he raised him back to life. That was God's way of saying, Jesus didn't die for his own sins. 
He didn't die because he was bad or I was unhappy with him. He died as an obedient servant. Therefore, I will raise him back up. I will give him all authority and I will appoint to him the judgment of the world on the last day. David prays with that promise of justice in mind. And notice he does so ultimately in verses 19 through 20. And here, David prays for God's prevailing glory. His prevailing glory. David is not just thinking personally. He's not thinking nationally. He is expanding his vision to the final picture of all things. And his one great desire is that humanity in rebellion against God will not be allowed to win in the end. In other words, his great hope and prayer is that revelation actually happens. Whenever Satan stirs up people of the world to rage against God, there is always a certain swagger that accompanies their small victories that is discouraging to the people of God. We've seen it in this country the last several months as decisions have been handed down from the court. More gruesomely, we have seen it in the words and the eyes of those who cover their faces but unsheath their swords to wreak havoc and evil on our brothers and sisters on the shores of other countries. We see it in the comparatively small personal defeats that we experience on a regular basis, perhaps from family or friends or co-workers or even employers. In all of these things, it is easy to forget that Yahweh is ruling over it all, that He is a God who has not forgotten the oppressed, that He is a God who is concerned for justice. It's easy to forget that through the atoning work of the cross, no spiritual force can ultimately triumph over us. And forgetting those things, we become easily depressed, perhaps even faithless in our outlook on these things. And it's in times like this that we need to remember to be praying like David in these final verses. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. We're praying not just for the immediate circumstances before us that he rise, but we're praying for with a large kingdom perspective that takes in the sweep of redemptive history. This, read, this week I read about um, the approach of the battle to Gettysburg. It was July 1863 and the lines of the Union Army were uh, a bit of a disaster. Uh, the, the, the troops were about to meet the Confederacy at Gettysburg and... Um, one historian describes a scene like this. Ambulances were clattering along. Dazed stragglers wandering, were wandering around. The deafening sound of big guns could be heard. The crackle of, along with the crackle of small arms and the yelling and screaming of men. The Union General Slocum was marching a column of his troops toward the firing line, which they could not yet see, but they could hear. They could hear the battle raging. And what they could hear more than anything was the high screech of rebel yells that completely unnerved them. Understand that these are not uh, young guys. These were veterans. But, quote, there was something about the ungodly racket they heard that put them on the edge of panic. And in this kind of bewildered, frightened state, they are marching along, shuffling towards the front lines of the battle and taking, uh, taking this, this winding road. They came across this small little cabin and standing out front by the road watching the soldiers that she supported go by was a little bent over old woman with a cane. She was watching these men and she could see the looks on their faces of abject fear. 
They were not ready for this battle. And so it's line after line of soldiers went by. She simply said these words. Never mind, boys. They're nothing but men. Never mind, boys. They're nothing but men. Never mind, boys. They are nothing but men. And isn't that what David is praying? Remind the nations they are nothing but men. They cannot dethrone Christ. They cannot destroy his church. They can in no way do any eternal harm to his people. One soldier later wrote in his journal that those commonplace words uttered in that context were the stabilizing power they needed. It turned them around from being faint-hearted to brave soldiers once again. Regardless of the power, of the fury, of the benevolence of any enemy in this life, they are but men, friends. And the best way to remind ourselves of that is not simply to pray hour by hour, day by day for the needs that are in front of us. That's how we get discouraged. We hear the rebel yells of the enemy and we grow faint-hearted and we say it looks like everything is going to pot and we're not winning. And so what we do is we begin to pray with a kingdom perspective like David. We pray with the end in mind. We pray about matters far larger than us. We pray things like, Arise, O Lord, and let not men prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear. Let the nations know that they are but men. As the new covenant people of God and in light of the work of Christ on the cross, we might simply pray those verses with this simple phrase, Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, that is our prayer this morning. Even as we think about all the difficulties that we face. God, in the previous hour, talking about how things look very bleak sometimes in our country and even in the church. But Father, we must keep the end in mind. We must keep the perspective of your kingdom and know, just as you reminded Elijah, though he thought he was the last remaining prophet, you had thousands preserved for the glory of your name and the good of your people. Father, help us not to be shaken by any enemy that we would encounter. Help us not to fear anyone, for they are but men. Satan, even, is just a defeated foe because of your son. Lord, we pray that you would bring us into your presence, that you would help us to remember who you are, how you have worked your salvation, how you have been merciful and gracious towards even those who are oppressed, and how all who have sought you have found you, and that you have never turned them away. Father, help us to remember that all throughout the pages of Scripture. Help us to remember that through our own lives and the lives of those that we see around us, that we might have confidence in you confidence to praise you, to give you the glory that you deserve, but also to call out to you in prayer in our times of need. God, we desire to draw near to you that you might draw near to us. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.